Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome to Prospect Barbacast, the only podcast in the world wishing you a happy Ethan holiday season. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman, and we are joined by Uncle Mike Farron. Hello, everybody. See, people know about Jackson holiday. They know about Matt holiday. Some even know about Ethan holiday. But did you know there's another brother? No, there is a third happy? one coming. Is that happy holiday? <laughs> There it is. There's Mike. Um, you would have to imagine that at some point uh, that joke was made when they were naming their children. But no, we are not going to talk about the holiday family. At least I don't think too much on this episode of Prospect Barbacast. This I mean, I'm very year. disappointed that Jake left out both Josh, who is the head coach of Oklahoma State, <laughs> and Tom, who's like one of the great college coaches of all time. But whatever. I mean, we're looking, we're looking forward, not not back looking. Okay, we're trying to see if there's more, you know, future number one overall picks coming. I, I know credit to Josh and Tom, they're still relevant to some degree, but we're looking ahead here, especially on this podcast. For all, come in, come on. That family is like the Jewish calendar, Jordan. Too many holidays to know about, but we're not going to focus on that. On this edition of Prospect Barbacast, we are going to chat about the spring breakout that was announced. We'll get into what that is, why it's cool, why we like it, why we don't. Maybe we don't. Maybe we do. We'll see. We're going to talk about the San Francisco Giants catching situation in the wake of the landmark Joe uh, Tom Murphy signing, the reverberations which uh, were felt as far east as New York City, where I'm sitting, we'll talk about short pitching kings and give a description of the 20 to 80 scale. As a reminder, if you're, lis- if you're listening to this and you're like, where's Baseball Barbacast? Monday, Wednesday, sorry, Monday, Friday. On Wednesdays, we talk about prospects and everything in the world of baseball development, prospecting, and whatnot. Anything else before we hop into spring breakout, my friends? I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to get into this. And I know, uh, Mike, this is a good topic to start here with the spring, the announcement from Major League Baseball of, uh, I guess, I don't know if you'd call this an initiative. I don't know how you would describe this. But what this is, which they are dubbing Spring Breakout, is essentially a series of exhibitions in spring training starting this year between organizations with teams exclusively made up of their top prospects. Now, my understanding is each team will only be doing one of these games, um, but it maybe it do, does it seem like there might be more? Than there's one? a couple that are doing two because there's okay. there's an odd number of teams right. in Florida and mm-hmm. in Arizona. So the Cardinals are playing two, the Reds are playing two. 
mm-hmm. um, as well. But this is like one of the great thrills of spring trading. I really like, listen, you guys know, and you're because you're you have the same sickness that I do in that we'll watch baseball all day, every day in any form. But probably the most tedious form of baseball to watch is spring training baseball. And the best parts of spring training baseball is when you get to see players that you haven't seen before, whether that be players that are new to your major league team or players that are coming up through the minors. And so this gives a great opportunity as a bunch of double headers over the span of a four day, um, uh, over a four day span in March for after the major league game to conclude on the big league spring training field, there's going to be a, prospect head-to-head matchup and so we'll get a chance to see and i'm sure some of these games will be covered on radio and television too um you know about 50 or so of the best prospects in each organization or 25 of each in in each organization go head-to-head and i think that's pretty cool i'm assuming that there's going to be some you know like maybe some guys that are on the 40 man that are in major league camp may not be available to it but overall i think it's a really great idea and it certainly jives with what mlb is trying to do in create more awareness for the minor leagues they have seemed to create they've wanted this initiative over the last several years where they have paid more attention or wanted to pay more attention to prospects so that when they get to the big leagues people already know who they are and kind of this um this idea that you know prospects are suspects until proven otherwise has been thrown to the side so that people can get excited about future players and argue about them and and decide which ones they want to trade and which ones they want to keep. I think MLB has looked around at other sports and has seen the extent to which the drafts are events in and of themselves. And it is difficult to blow up a MLB draft at that level without educating fans about prospects. Because if you are able to watch the draft and then your those players disappear for two or three years, you're less compelled to want to tune in. And I think what MLB is trying to do here is to make that pipeline more accessible to people. And it's and it's an, a no doubt obvious good thing. There is one downside though that I thought of, which is if you are a, a fan of a team with a really shitty farm system, you're then forcing your fans to watch all of those players at once. Well, that's <laughs> like it is. Like I was looking at some of the matchups, right? It's like, are there any incredibly lopsided showdowns where it's like one stacked system? Oh, against sure. One? I mean, if we were, I mean, doing the Red like, Sox Braves, yeah. right? Like ooh. right off the top, that's one that it's like, ooh, boy, that's a big difference. Yeah, no, and that's true. I mean, I would say that, of course, if we're talking about a single game. I have to imagine that most of these will be able to avoid. I don't know how many pitchers are running out there for doing one inning or how that's right. all going to be structured. I am interested in that. You, you make the, the reference to the draft and other sports, and I think we've talked a lot about this in recent years. Dodgers, to- Angels. Oh, <laughs> man. That's pretty rough. That's pretty rough. So, again, it would be more fun if you're doing full series, right? Then we'd really start to understand the discrepancy. But, again, you mentioned the draft and, like, I think as much as you know, we all love the draft and, and want it to get more attention building up to it and, and teaching people about amateur prospects in college and in high school, I think this is way easier because the reality is we're fans. And sure, you could say, oh, who do you want your guy to take or your team to take in with the 17th pick? But ultimately, if you know this guy's already part of my organization, this guy's already put up stats in the minor leagues, 
of of maybe even double A, right? It's something like if I know this guy is going to be coming to the major leagues at some point soon and impact my favorite team, that's as much incentive to watch it as anything. Now, I really hope that as much of this as possible is televised because that would feel like obviously spring training is a thing where people buy tickets for this, but like this is a very key detail and I haven't seen any specific promises about that, but I do hope that that is a part of this because again, to your point, Mike, about like whether we've seen them before, like literally like seeing what they look like in a major league uniform, spring training Mm -hmm. is such a big part of that. But normally it's so unpredictable and random. Now, sometimes you get to see top top guys get in the starting lineup of a spring training game. But for the most part, it's like, Oh, holy shit, this, you know, top 50 guy just subbed in in the sixth inning. Is the game televised? Oh, it's right. not, right? And then it's like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with that as a fan who's maybe not in Arizona or not in Florida? So I think concentrating it and structuring it and organizing it is a brilliant idea. And, and I really do like that effort, even if, again, I, I hope that it can all get its proper promotion and, you know, particularly from a television standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that famous clip from a Cardinal spring training game about 10 years ago when mm-hmm. the late Oscar Tavares came in mm-hmm. and nobody knew who he was and it said minor league guy on the screen, right? Right, that was right. One of the best outfield prospects in baseball. So, and I think the other thing, I mean, to your point on, you know, listen, like I, I would like to see the draft get bigger. I think college baseball in particular is pretty accessible if you are in college towns or near college towns, um, especially as the weather gets better in the north. It's a great way to go and see quality baseball cheap, especially in the, the bigger conferences. But minor league baseball in the you know 120 different municipalities that have it um, is pretty accessible, and there is a chance, depending on what region you live in, that your favorite team's prospects are coming through at some point. Who knows if seeing someone in spring training or on TV during a spring training game, and you go, "Oh yeah, that player is going to end up, let's say, in you know Midland, um, you know, and let's say you're an A's fan that's living in Dallas, right? Like, um, you know, I can." get a chance to see them when they play in the Texas league, you know, at a stop that's close to me. So I think there's in, in, and I think the other is that, you know, if there's elite level prospects and you happen to live in a spot and you hear on one of these broadcasts that, Hey, they're going to be playing close by, you may make it a point to go see them too. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of minor league baseball, you know, this is a little bit different than what I think a lot of minor league baseball is, at least from the fan standpoint, from the standpoint, it's, going to see at a game affordably and making great, you know, family entertainment. Mm-hmm. But for some people, the hardcore baseball fans, it's a chance to see the biggest names before they get big or to try and sit, tell your friends, Hey, I was in on the ground floor on this guy. So I think it's, I think it's pretty exciting. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this plays out. And really I'm, I'm more than anything. I'm looking forward to see how this grows over the next several years. Cause this is not something they're going to do just once. No, I'm excited to have something that just breaks up the monotony of spring training. Yeah, like by that by the middle end of March, I'm ready to just. I mean, I I've barely I've watched less and less spring training every year, really. Even since well, it's because we're doing... watching college baseball. <laughs> I know that's 100 percent correct. Like that, I have no, and it is the opposite because you know one of our favorite parts, of course, about watching college baseball is that the games matter on February 18th, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas. Going from that, um, even if before you get into conference play to the game, to it's the opposite of that. We're going through the motions. But that is what gets me to tune in to, it, to a spring training game is knowing that a top 100 prospect is in the lineup or a top 100 prospect is on the mound for the first couple innings. That That is always what gets my attention and will continue to. So to have it all concentrated, I, I think, is a great idea. What do we think about the name? And then we'll move on. Mm. Spring breakout. It reminds me of... <laughs> 
uh, the April of my 10th grade year. Oh. Right before I went on Accutane. That was my spring breakout. <laughs> yeah. Did, did that line up right around that same time? I, I, again, oh, yeah. now, are any of these prospects young enough to still be getting acne? Probably. I, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, Jackson Holiday <laughs> definitely looks like he's young enough to still have it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, these are the I, oily-faced youth of America. It should be spring breakout brought to you by Neutrogena. <laughs> I am curious, like something I am fascinated by is is maybe not really strategy, but like how different teams choose. Because it seems like the teams are going to have the option. They're basically designating their roster, which is kind of a fascinating exercise in and of itself. And I know the 40-man considerations will make it, but like they're almost going to have to tell us who they who they view as their top prospects. And in that sense, I think, I know it's one game, but I think we could also learn a lot from that. And I'm also curious too about, this is a fun part of the Futures game also, is you see, again, a lot of range. Guys that have been, that just crushed AA, guys that haven't even played A-ball yet, but you know are extremely promising that maybe just got drafted out of high school. Seeing all those guys on the same field kind of helps us calibrate you know where all of these guys are at in their development. Yeah, and I think I think well, I'm curious to see because we've seen it with futures games over the years too, which teams aren't necessarily sending their best prospects to it if there are mm-hmm. some that withhold them from this game. Yeah, I would think that the league probably wouldn't be particularly happy for that. But I think you're right that there's um, a sense of of you can get at least a feel for what some internal evaluations may feel like and where they might differ from some of the publicly available lists. I think the other thing is that it gives you a chance to have a showcase event. For some of these players, you know, especially for like, let's say the Reds, who are likely to be in contention this year and still have a pretty decent farm system. It's two looks against high level competition for a number of their guys that scouts are going to get now, obviously not on consecutive days. And we the the level of pitching could vary depending on who they're playing. You know, the game against Cleveland probably involves maybe a little bit more velocity than some of the guys against Texas or the Texas Rangers certainly have a deep enough um, farm system to make things really interesting in something like that. I mean, they're pretty loaded with position, pl- their position player group in particular. But I, I think it's it's you know it's a good chance for scouts to be able to evaluate them on a little bit bigger stage with a little bit more pressure too. And even though they're kind of one off looks. I know enough scouts that still find value in all-star games like that to see how mm-hmm. players handle that and perform against the best competition. How how do your not necessarily results look, but how do you uh, how you know how quality are your at bats? How about the ways that you um, you know attack hitters? All of that. Mm-hmm. Let's change gears and go from the future to the past and turn our attention to San Francisco, California, where the Giants recently signed Tom Murphy to be their backup catcher, two-year, $8 million deal. Now, why are we discussing a 32-year-old catcher on Prospect Barbacast? That is because Tom Murphy's signing bumps a gentleman by the name of Joey Bart to fourth, not even third, probably fourth, on the Giants catching depth chart behind Murphy, their starter, Patrick Bailey, and Blake Sable, who uh, does some catching, does some outfield, does some DHing, a little bit of everything. And the reason this is relevant is because Joy Bart was the number two pick in the draft in 2019. 2018, excuse me. Number two pick in the draft in 2018. And here we are heading into 2024. He has no options left. He will almost certainly start the year, what, in 
on another on another on team another in another organization. Yeah. yeah, he will not be. I mean, every, everything about this move, and you could argue whether you know Sable's definitely going to. He was their Rule Five pick. Whether he's going to start the big leagues next year, but uh, this would seem to be the end of of Joey Bart in San Francisco. And I wanted to kind of bring this up as a topic because I was curious about, you know, Mike's kind of memories as, as Joey Bart as a prospect. And listen, there's, there's a million, you know, top 10 picks that don't end up being what we expect. But I think this one in particular is one in this moment of Joe of the giants moving on from Joey Bart is a moment that I've kind of been wondering about since they took Patrick Bailey in the first round two years after him. And I know in baseball, you're not necessarily drafting, you know, for need all the time and you're going to take the best player no matter what. But that really said a lot to me at the time. And I know they've had some change in leadership over the last few years that has maybe hinted at, you know, who what what they would be prioritizing and the kind of players that they would be giving every chance, you know, to earn their earn their spot as part of the Giants' future. But this is a pretty pretty it's it's both it's not surprising considering how Joey Bart has looked as, as a major leaguer but it is an interesting thing to kind of reflect upon as to kind of where this went wrong and then how they you know ended up with Patrick Bailey who I also think is a really interesting future to project out so let's go back to to kind of maybe when Joey Bart was a prospect if that makes seems like a good place to start Mike or did you have any other yeah no I think it's I think it is I mean Bart was viewed as a power hitting catcher coming out of Georgia Tech who had pretty unique feel for calling the game. I remember Kylie McDaniel from ESPN telling a story about when Bart was for midweek games, he would call local area scouts to try and get information on scouting reports for guys that they may not have had. And this is right about the time that Synergy was starting to take hold, which is a computer program that gets you access to a lot of the, the uh, minor league and, and, and amateur video, but he was calling to try and get information on guys to try and learn how to pitch them. He was viewed as a pretty, polished complete player um coming to the giants with a a surefire future behind the plate and the power certainly showed up in his in the low minor leagues and then 2020 happened and he kind of got rushed to the big leagues despite the what happened hadn't really what happened um that was the only thing that happened trapped inside yeah you were trapped (laughs) rushed to the big leagues nine months yeah um you know playing at the alternate site buster posey had um opted out of the season the giants Mm -hmm. needed help at catcher and you know he was coming up on a year that he needed to be added to the 40-man roster anyway and it didn't go well he looked like a player who was overmatched a lot of times at the big league level i think the other thing that has kind of plagued Bart, and I think we should probably get into this deeper, is that there have been some questions about his makeup and um, the way he's acted around your players. I know scouts have not always been a big fan of his. I mean, that's, I'll give you a little bit more on that in a little bit on um, some of what I've heard, both good and bad on him. But it seemed like people had soured on him. And I think the biggest thing is, and this really shows up pretty pretty much throughout his professional statistical line, is that he never really mastered the strike zone particularly well. Um, you know, he was never a guy that, that you know, m- was making consistently great swing decisions to be able to tap into the power. And I think even, you know, in a limited sample in double A in 2019, it's one of those reasons why I think now in retrospect, now that we have a much clearer mind three years after the 2020 season, it should have been a little bit surprising that he was you know, forced to the big leagues at that level. I mean, he's got a full season's worth of major league at bats now, 503, right? Which would qualify you for a season. He's hit 219, 288, 335 for a slash line. That's 
worse than the league average hitter. And power, having been his calling card, has been well below average, not just in terms of his home run total, but if you, 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 that slug on a low batting average um, isn't great. And he struck out in more than a third of his plate appearances. So mm-hmm. I think some of it speaks to how difficult it is to evaluate um, amateurs, how difficult professional baseball is. And I think it also speaks to, you know, right then was when there was a change in that organization on how they were going to evaluate players because that was, um, you know, the number two overall pick, Brian Sabian was in charge of that by 2020. Um, Farhan Zaidi was the, the head of uh, baseball operations and Patrick Bailey was drafted despite some questionable offensive skills, which I think are still questionable there, but he's viewed as a good receiver with a strong arm and the defensive value has shown up much more statistically than it had to this point for Bart. I want to talk for a second when you use the word swing decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is a phrase that has become, you know, part of the scouting player development, player analysis lexicon over the last five years. And it is both a very simple concept and something that is worth digging deeper into. So when Mike says swing decisions, he is uh, saying, what are the pitches that Joey Bart is swinging at and when and where? Right. And that is any number of different stats. So that is in-zone swing rate, that is out-of-zone swing rate, that is edge swing rate, which is an important one, and that depends on the count. And we, you see this manifesting itself in the skill sets of players or in the production of players like Gunnar Henderson. We talked about this yesterday, Jordan, off the air. Like, Gunnar Henderson's 2023 is a great example of how swing decisions impact your production. At the beginning of the season, Gunnar Henderson was barely swinging at anything in the strike zone. He became more aggressive turn into a different hitter. But in Bart's case, right, the issue with his swing decisions is more about his O swing. Am I correct about that? Yeah, his his in-zone yeah. contact is shockingly low. So uh, the league average zone contact rate this past season was 85.4. How? What percentage of pitches in the strike zone are you putting in play, right? Bart's career in-zone contact rate is 76.7, almost 10 points below the league average. And when you are missing that often in zone, you are going to get attacked more in zone. And that is going to be a bigger issue. I know you're still saying, hey, three out of four times when he swings at a pitch in the zone, he's making contact. It's still a pretty low number relative to what you would expect. And I think... think yeah. The other part, just to finish on that, was yeah. that, that that swing and miss extended outside the strike zone. He actually doesn't chase a ton. It's a little bit, uh, it's right around the league averages, at least in terms of, of his plate discipline and his limited major league career. But when he does swing outside the zone, he swings and misses a much higher rate than the average. So that's actually less than, um, that's not exactly swing decisions, right? His well, it is. Made- it is because it's if you're swinging at pitches outside the strike zone. That's the first part. Yeah, yeah. It's you're like, choosing which pitches to swing at, right? So right. that so all his, goes into swing decision. His O swing, his out of zone swing is thirty five point four. League average is thirty one. So it's a little bit above league average. Basically, his chase rate. But the issue, in my opinion, and why he has struggled is that he. It, it's not just the chase rate. There are many good hitters with a thirty five percent chase rate. It's more that he is not making significant contact on pitches in the strike zone. Now, if you if you are to be uh, a little bit more generous, you say, all right, well, but he really hasn't had that much consistent run of major league at-bats. And yes, if you put together the total, it goes over 500, but he hasn't really done it. Now, not that his numbers in the upper minors have been particularly uh, you know, promising in that sense, 
But I think as we kind of spin this to Patrick Bailey, I think that's where the comparison becomes really interesting because Patrick Bailey, in terms of uh, also came out of the draft having put up monster numbers in the ACC, but he also came with a really, really strong defensive reputation, the kind that Joey Bart seemed to have. You kind of alluded to maybe the game calling and the game preparation, but Patrick Bailey, again, if we want to, you know, kind of veer into some of the, some of the sort of the makeup stuff and how he interacts with his teammates, his pitching staff, how you are counting on him to get better and improve in every facet of the game. I'm sure you've had this experience because I know you talk to every, people love Patrick. Bay. People are obsessed with how um, I, from the Giants people that I spoke to this year, there was an extreme adoration for him as a game caller, as a game manager, as as a catcher, and that character. He carries a lot of the same offensive concerns. I know he had a strong start to his mm-hmm. working season. He tailed off because he too was swinging at everything, even more aggressive, never walking, swinging at a ton of stuff all over the place, swinging and missing. But that defensive aptitude and that foundation that he has, which is mostly elite framing and elite control of the running game, that has essentially fortified his role with the Giants in some form in the offense we will see. But I sense that they were very ready to kind of move on to him once he had shown that he was able to kind of hack it at the big league level as soon as Bart was. Well, and that's that's what you saw, and that's why he he ended up taking over as their starting catcher. Now, the throwing, he got off to a great start throwing, and it kind of um, changed as the season went on. It, it kind of, you know, you're always going to revert to the mean a little bit, right? So he got a little bit closer to league average. It's unique, too. He throws more like an infielder, right? It's mm-hmm. a very low arm slot, almost like a shortstop that he throws from, and yet, for the most part, he's accurate with it. And you're right. Like, the defensive reputation is very, very strong because he does these quantifiable things really well. He's a very good receiver. He gets extra strikes on the edges of the strike zone. Um, he is able to control the running game. You know, the the game calling is a little bit different in mm-hmm. that we don't have a really great way to quantify that, but he was a very valuable player this year, despite the fact that he was not a good offensive player. And he did so, you know, he was, he was basically an above average regular almost solely on his defense playing fewer than a hundred games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's impressive there, you know, in talking to some giants, people, not everybody thought that Joey Bart wasn't willing to work. There were people who said that he put in the work, that that mm-hmm. wasn't an issue, that he was trying hard. And I think if you look at, you know, again, a limited sample this year, there were some improvements that looked like in terms of swing in zone swing um, in zone contact there. There's certainly not the power potential with Bailey that there was with Bart. But you're also talking about a guy who's 20, what, 26, almost 27 years old in Bart. Bailey's a little bit younger. And even if he doesn't produce much offensively, um, you know, he has proven that he can receive at the big league level. And now now he needs to do it again. I mean, I think this is the, the part that is a little bit tricky in all of this is that that they've kind of run out of time on Bart, right? Like he's out of options. If you're going to sign another catcher, it means you're not keeping him most likely and he's going to get another opportunity someplace else. But the numbers really did get much worse as the year went on for Patrick Bailey. Oh, yeah. Enough so that they started to look fairly similar to Joey Bart's. Mm-hmm. Um, in the second half of last season, Bailey hit under 200 with a slugging percentage that was in the 250s. Right. Um, and while his walk rate improved closer to league average, he was striking out nearly 30% of the time. So it's 
and that's even with a strong August. I mean, a really strong August. Now, maybe he wore out at the end of September. Maybe August was an outlier in terms of the walk totals because it certainly doesn't line up with the rest of the season. But like as much as we feel like we got really good information on Bailey's defense last year, it still is not uh, totally. a book that's been written, right? We have this one chapter in it. Yeah. And it still feels a little odd that a guy who was a draft pick two years after the number two overall pick has clearly supplanted Joey Bart as the catcher for the Giants, even when accounting for the struggles of Bart in the upper minors, when you start looking at what Bailey's offensive line has been like. So it's a really tricky situation for them overall. And Bart is going to benefit from a change of scenery, I would think. I think it's probably, you know, sometimes through no fault of a player's own or no fault of the organization even, you end up with a guy who, um, you know, doesn't necessarily fit what an organization's trying to do. And it might be that that's part of what what Bart gets. Yeah. I and, and, think yeah. the important part with Bailey here is that with his defensive reputation and defensive output at the beginning of this season – he earned himself the opportunity to improve at the big league level, mm-hmm. which is what Bart did not earn himself, right? And that is the difference to me. That is the distinction. In a year, we could be saying, oh, well, Patrick Bailey can't hit at the big league level, yeah, right? Yeah. But we don't know that. And he right. is going to have every opportunity to fail because of what it means to be an above average defensive catcher. Jordan, I'll kick it to you. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, Mike, I was just going to say, the last thing I was just going to say on this is is to your point, right? Like, as as exciting as, as Bailey's defense was, to your point, like, we don't know yet. And mm-hmm. that maybe he's proven enough defensively that we know he's going to have some sort of major league role where Joey Bart still has something to prove, I think, even on that sense. And I think he'll have that opportunity elsewhere. I mean, this is... They, they've been searching here, right? And, and it's not just you think, okay, they're trying to find their catcher after Buster Posey. They haven't really hit at the top of the draft since Buster Posey. I mean, this has been a really rough run of Giants drafts at the very top. They have you go through those names, and it goes back as, as recently uh, as unfortunately for for a guy like Hunter Bishop um, that we've that we saw who mm-hmm. certainly struggled in a big way. He was the tenth overall pick, you know, the year after Bart. But you go before that. I mean, we got Hilio Ramos, big leaguer, sort of. Phil Bickford, of course, never impacted them there. Chris Shaw, Tyler Beatty, Christian Arroyo. You know, Joe Panic was like a solid player for them. But it's been after that run of they went Mad Bum Posey Zach Wheeler in three straight years, which is about strong as, as good as you're going to get in three straight you know top ten picks. Since then, it's been very 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 little, and for them to then you know still be looking again, especially for that catcher that anchor that they were so used to having with Posey, they're gonna it's that's a tough thing to to kind of work around, and, and we'll see with Bailey. I, I'm a fan, but um, I, I do I do agree that it is far from certain that he is a hundred percent the answer as the full time guy. Yeah, and I think the other part too is that like the question there are a lot of questions still on their last couple of first round picks. Too, yeah, right? Will Bednar, who's the brother of, of Pirates closer David Bednar, has battled some back issues um, that have left him not. He's been ineffective when he's pitched, but he just hasn't been able to pitch much because of injury. Reggie Crawford was a two way player they took out of UConn in, in first round of twenty twenty, who'd missed the previous season because of Tommy Johnson surgery big arm hasn't really pitched much yet in pro ball and Bryce Eldridge is a two-way player out of high school and so they've they really have not shown that they have have been able to get over the hump I mean the most valuable first round pick that they've taken maybe outside of Bailey in the last what since Joe Panic, you could make the cases 
Chris Stratton. Yeah, which, I mean, that's, again, who didn't do much with the Giants, if anything, right? right? So, who, by the way, was just on the Royals uh, season ticket sale hype poster. <laughs> do you think Chris Stratton was ever on a hype poster at Mississippi State? Uh, yeah. it was, and I can't decide whether or not Chris Stratton or Garrett Hampson being on that was better. Right. So, and, Royals, and, baby. and listen, again, and, and by the way, uh, Tim Winscombe, of course, was, was 06, too. I didn't even mention him. So, like, that's four in a row that's just, like, unbelievable. But it's been it's been rough. I mean, there have been a couple, and, and sure, you could sort of pick and choose this with a lot of drafts. It's it's really hard. It's really hard. But they've they've struggled to really supply, you know, support that the their ability to find late bloomers and and other you know core p- pieces through other ways. Of course, they've had a lot of homegrown guys, but missing on the top of the draft that often can put you in a delicate spot, especially when it's the same position over the span of a few years. All right, let's take a break. Uh, let's take a break, and when we return, we're going to talk about some some short kings. Let's talk about some short kings. The short, short let's talk about. Let's talk about. We'll be right back on Prospect Barbecue. And welcome back to Baseball Barbecast. Jake Mintz, Jordan Schuster, and Mike Farron. Mike, how tall are you? Five. I mean, my listed height is five ten. Ooh. Yeah, but but now you can't lie about it anymore because you know. it'll affect the automated ball strike. Yeah. <laughs> Would can't. you describe Mike as an undersized baseball <laughs> analyst? Is he undersized? Are we undersized? Because if no, if we no, were no, pitchers, no shot. I, I'm just gonna say if we were pitchers, I'm yeah. five ten and change. Jordan's five eleven. Mm-hmm. Are we undersized starting pitchers? Yes. Are we undersized baseball commentators? No shit. Absolutely chance. not. Shouts no out to Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Passan. <laughs> so, yeah. What, what it's all context that, dependent, Mike? baby. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm kind of the Rich Garces of this. Do you guys remember El Guapo, right? He was little undersized portly right-hander. That's Mike. Lovable. That's Mike, all right. Uh, now, what we are going to talk about, um, again, you know, we think about this on, on Prospect Barbacast, what... Think about a little, little bit more bigger picture, you know, and we've had a lot of conversations, of course, about Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who, as we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, still has not signed, and we'll see. And he's listed at 5'10 and has often referred to as an undersized right-hander. Also had reports on Tuesday that the Padres are signing left-handed reliever Yuki Matsui, also one of the better pitchers in NPB over the last uh, decade or so. Now, that's a reliever, but still, How tall he's, he? he's listed at 5'8". Um, and when you watch when you watch highlights, you can so you're like, yep, that that guy's five eight. There's no no lying about that. He and, and so, I share something in common. We both look up to Mike Farron. <laughs> and when you <laughs> and when you combine uh, when you combine that with not just Yamamoto Matsui, but Shota Imanaga, another Japanese pitcher listed at five ten, and the fact that really the two most successful quote unquote short pitchers of the last ten years were both free agents this offseason, one of which has already signed in Sonny Gray with the Cardinals and Marcus Stroman, who remains uh, on the open market. I think this is a, a topic worth considering here. I know, uh, Mike, you referenced a story written mm-hmm. by uh, one of our favorite uh, baseball writers that we know, uh, Alex Spear of the Boston Former Globe, guest. Kind former of uh, guest. former guest, of course, uh, about about this topic. But I figured we'd, br- we'd bring it here to the show because I think it is uh, an interesting one that that is certainly fresh because of the names we just mentioned, but also when we start to project and think about what teams are valuing and what we could expect to see as baseball evolves, kind of, I was curious where you, where you kind of stood on this. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this was a topic of discussion much more 15, 20 years ago than it Mm -hmm. has been of late. 
um, there was a feeling that short pitchers could not hold up. And I think it's one of the reasons why the Astros moved Billy Wagner very quickly to the bullpen in the minor leagues. And Wagner is listed at five, eight, and obviously was one of the most dominant relief pitchers of all time. For my money, he should be in the hall of fame. I mean, if you compare him to his peers, um, he really was without comparison at run prevention. Um, but, you know, Wagner and Roy Oswald, who was there as his contemporary, were kind of seen as unique in that regard. And this was a big part of discussion when Sonny Gray was drafted out of Vanderbilt was, well, he's he's small. So is he going to be able to hold up? And certainly Gray's had injuries, but no more so than many other taller pitchers. It does feel like the more that some of these biases that were passed down through, I guess, for lack of a better term, oral tradition over, you know, 70 plus years of baseball evaluation with more information have gone by the wayside. And I think in this case, um, a lot of it has to do with biometric analysis and seeing that in order to be small and throw hard, you need to be a pretty terrific athlete and the best athletes on the mound not entirely but for the most part are the ones that repeat their deliveries the best and the guys that repeat their deliveries consistently if they also can develop multiple pitches have a tendency to start so i think that's why this has become less of an issue even though alex's research and this was fascinating shows that there actually were fewer starts by short pitchers last year than there were 10 years ago and dave bush who uh, was quoted in the article, a former Red Sox pitching coach, it was like, that definitely does not track with where my mindset was. So I don't think it's that teams have started looking for the 6'3", 185-pound stud again um, over the shorter pitcher. I think this is just likely cyclical because to your point on the number of international free agents that are undersized and then add in the, these couple of um, you know, major league pitchers who've had very good careers in Gray and Stroman, um, y- you have seen uh, more of a willingness to accept those guys if they have the functional strength to be able to repeat their deliveries. So two points here. One, give me two minutes to explain why being short is helpful, depending on your arsenal. I want everyone to think about Spencer Strider, who is six foot tall. But what's important about Spencer Strider is the height at which he releases the baseball and the angle with which the baseball crosses the strike zone. That is something that is called vertical attack angle. Literally, the angle at which the degrees, right, at which the baseball enters the strike zone. You want that to be as short as possible, as small as possible, as flat of an entrance into the strike zone as possible if you are throwing a four-seam fastball with perfect spin axis end over end. It creates an illusion like the pitch is rising that no, and and when it is at a lower release, it is even harder for hitters to pick it up and to hit that. And any pitch that Spencer Strider has, any fastball he's ever thrown at the top of the zone is the perfect example of this, right? And so short pitchers with high ride, high carry fastballs, that release point, right, the shorter the pitcher, usually the lower that release point is going to be. And that is a great example when we're talking about Yuki Matsui, who doesn't really have like a uniquely low release point when you watch him. But because he's 5'8", it is simply coming at you short at a lower height, 
versus the ground. Mm-hmm. So that is the thought process behind it. Now, if you are a sinker baller, you want to be as tall as possible and create as steep an angle as possible into the hitting zone, right? So that's just what uh, something to think about. Then well, one so, other, let me let ahead. me add just on that real quick. I mean, like, we, and I was actually having this conversation with our friend Kevin Franza today. Like, you can be tall and still get that flat angle. So, like Jacob Mizorowski, who is one of the more exciting pitching prospects out of the Brewers organization, is six seven. But his release height is very similar to what Christian Javier's is. And, and Javier is one of those pitchers that has what Jake's talking about with that flat angle fastball that plays at the top of the zone. It's just that Mizorowski has two more gears on his. Right. <laughs> like, you know, but- like he throws 102, like legitimately. So you, there are ways you can do it if you are a lower slot, tall Correct. guy. But it's much easier. It's much more natural for that shorter pitcher. And then the reason I think we have taller pitcher, like the the reasoning behind Alex's data that we're seeing less, we're seeing fewer starts from short guys. As someone who coaches Little League, okay, I am culpable. When you are younger, the taller kids are stronger and more athletic almost usually, right? And those kids get pushed to the mound because they can throw harder and they have tend to have better body control at that age. Right. And that bias just keeps on going as the kids get older and the kids with more experience on the mound tend to be the better ones. Yes, Josiah Gray's exist where they are shortstops who were converted in college. But as a whole, the entire baseball playing population, that bias was really young. Right. And I think it is on. I think it's on like people like me believe it or not, to give all types of players the opportunity to try to pitch at a younger age so that we are we are creating more variation in what ends up in the major leagues. I would just add that there is a pretty, I know oftentimes, and not that I blame Alex for kind of simplifying it and for the most part, referring to under six feet, which is clearly rare, right? That at the, If you even just go with that baseline, but, you know, just running a couple, you know, stat head searches now, like there is a massive difference between 5'10 and 5'8 or even 5'11 and 5'8. Like you even 5'11 and 5'10, you could argue in terms of just how many we've had starting games at that level. Like when you lower it to 5'8 and we don't expect Yuki Matsuya to be a starter, so I don't want to get too, you know, overhyping about, about him in, in particular, but even Yamamoto at 5'10, just looking at just the number of pitchers in a season that are 5'10 that have started a game. This past year, we had six at 5'10. Mm-hmm. And that includes Stroman, that includes Sonny Gray, he's listed at 5'10. And then it includes a bunch of openers. I mean, Jose Suarez with the Angels, Justin Garza, Sam Mall, Austin Pruitt. You lower it to 5'8, it's basically just Stroman for the last 20 seasons. And that is why he, I mean, you mentioned Sonny Gray. Like I remember Stroman's draft year even more so where I was like, this is different. Yeah. And he has defied that to a pretty extreme degree. You know why, right? Because uh, height he, doesn't, he's, height he's doesn't measure heart. Height doesn't measure it heart. Doesn't. It doesn't. It does not. He's made that very clear. And we can roll our eyes all we want, but when he's defied it to this degree, it is hard uh, It is hard to hate too much. But, but, but I think but, the yeah. other part of his too is that, you know, like that idea of creating down angle and downward plane was everything in pitching development until the yeah. last 10 or so years. And so now that kind of invisible fastball at the top of the zone 
is something, you know, whether I don't think it was entirely Brent Strom, who's now the Diamondbacks pitching coach, but had been in, in uh, the Astros pitching coach before that was in the Cardinals organization was the one who, you know, introduced this. I mean, I remember as a kid, cause I'm a lot older than you guys are um, oh, that, yeah. that it oh, was cool. like cool. in the eighties, which is not something that you're familiar with. Is that a velocity range or a decade? I'm confused. <laughs> it was then, um, they, there were a lot more, it felt like high fastballs that were thrown that guys could not lay off. And that in the nineties, as players got bigger and stronger for some injectable reason, um, the emphasis became on pounding the bottom of the zone. And so you saw that downward plane really become important and creating down angle on the fastball was something that, I mean, it's still, you hear baseball people who know better have it just kind of slip out when talking about pitchers in general, as opposed to looking at these different ways. Really, we've created this different kind of kaleidoscope for pitchers now than what we had, which was you, you fit into a couple of small categories. And now I think teams and scouts are better evaluating, evaluating what pitchers do well and trying to maximize that ability. Yeah. And I think when you look, okay, so, When we're talking about command, I think it's easier for a shorter pitcher to, like, have Mm -hmm. good command. I would take just command, okay? Just command and control. I would take all the people under six foot as a group versus six one and over because the shorter your limbs, the more control you tend to have over them as a whole. That's not true for everybody. There are short people who don't know where their arms are, and there are tall people who, like, are your press. Yeah, you're impressed, right? And that, but I thought you were going to say LeBron because they tend to be playing a sport other than baseball when they're that. Cool. I love, I love that Jordan and I are like Yuri Perez at the exact same time. <laughs> yeah. um, but as a whole, like I think shorter pitchers know where their arms are, and I think they're able to repeat their deliveries better. Um, Spencer Strider is a physical freak, yeah, but he's a really, really good example of that. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, like, it doesn't. Getting back to Jake's point about you know, coaching at, at the youth levels and who, I mean, both coaches at the level that Jake is, but also even at the high school level. And as we're actually getting closer to professional baseball, what kind of athletes are we looking to be on the mound more so than what their size is? Like literally more about their movements and their balance as much as it is just like, what are they actually physically built like is mm-hmm. I think maybe a direction we're, we're more likely to see. Well, and there's a b- big difference between, you know, like going back like more than 10 years ago when Dylan Batances was one of the top prospects. Mm-hmm. And if you saw Batances, he never looked like the most coordinated dude on the mound. And then, you know, like say a Tyler Glasnow, who is much more athletic, although Glasnow had a lot of trouble repeating his delivery and another guy who's super tall and had to figure out some tricks to be able to do it. And like even Randy Johnson at 6'10", who was a little bit lower arm slot, you know, he, he very famously, and if you get Randy to talk about it, it'll tell you, Tom House and Nolan Ryan noticed that I was landing on the <laughs> heel of my foot, and then that was causing my fastball to spray all over the place. And then Randy will go on for 20 minutes about it. But, um, you know, like making adjustments there to try and take advantage of their size and their athleticism. Sometimes it, it can be difficult, to Jake's point, when you have more arms and limbs. Yeah. That's why I'm short. You just didn't want the big arms. Yeah, my mom asked me. My mom said, listen, son, (laughs) you want big arms? said no. Maybe, you know, maybe we will 
you know, someday have more, I, you know, shall I, again, like when you can see the, the Strowmans and the Grays and, you know, Mike Leak was very successful. Chris Medlin comes to mind as, mm-hmm. as a shorter pitcher who had a lot of success. Uh, maybe we will have it. And Yamamoto in, in some respects will be um, one hell of a test case, although he is exceptional in ways that go far beyond uh, his height, as we have certainly learned. Uh, Jake, I know you had one more topic you wanted to to hit on before we uh, before we say goodbye, or you wanna you wanna you wanna kill that? I'm kind of done with you people. I, I mean, we've already gone 45 <laughs> minutes. We got a whole winter of joy. Okay. Uh, well, to, then, to well bring then, since you teased it at the top, we can kick it to to another show. Um, yeah. But but let's 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 just do that. Okay. I know the, I know you wanted to talk about the 2080 scale because it is something that we just throw around all the time and we say oh yeah that guy's got 60 this and 45 that and 35 this and it does seem like something that is worthy of full topic so we're gonna we're gonna push that to another uh, another prospect broadcast in the future 35 don't, don't assume this. though that we know what we're talking about with that yeah also 35 <laughs> is a coward's grade that's what i was taught uh, i don't know i just i i'm i'm a big 35 guy when it comes 35. to oh, no. when it comes to overall future value <laughs> or to a specific tool specific everything I oh, 35 God. is mm, seems like you two disagree. I will say Jordan, like as, half grades. Jordan, as the kids say, you need to stand on business. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, we will we will push this argument over whether 35 is a real grade or not. To the future, a future edition of Prospect Barbicast. Mike Farron, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like I learned things. I hope you had an okay time. I always have fun with you guys, and I always learn something too. Oh, that's good. That seems absurd that we could ever offer that to you, but it is very humbling. I'm glad you. I'm glad you had a good time, Jake Mintz. Did you have a good time? I had a great time, and we will be back on Friday <laughs> with another edition of Baseball mm-hmm. Barbacast. Mm-hmm. Before Jordan, we head out yeah. for a little little break. Yeah. Oh, yes. We 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 got some travel. We got all kinds of. I don't know what Mike's travel plans are. We're going to ask him as soon as we get off uh, this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, we will keep this feed alive, buzzing, because that's what Baseball Barbacast and Prospect Barbacast is all about. You can email us at baseballbarbacast at gmail.com. That's B-A-R-B-Cast. Thank you, Isabella Josen, for producing this. Jake Mintz, final words. 27. All right, 27. (laughs) Thank you. Goodbye. Sirius XM Podcasts. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.